Well, if you're visiting us maybe for the first time today, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to help us worship the Lord through the study of His Word. And uh, we're going to, uh, on the backside of this moment, we will step into a special time around the Lord's table and enjoy some more singing. But uh, let's see what God has for us in His Word. What do you say? To do that, let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament. Find the book of Ephesians, if you would, please. Chapter 2, if you need a Bible today, Charlie's in the back, and he'd be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. And please grab the little note page that's in your bulletin. Uh, Take hold of that, and uh, we'll work our way through that together as part of our time. The setting was England in the middle of the last century. The occasion was a Christian conference at which were gathered some of the premier Bible scholars and theologians of the day. During a break, several of these learned teachers were enjoying a spirited debate about what it is that makes Christianity as a belief system unique, sets it apart from everything else. Someone suggested that what sets Christianity apart from other religions is the incarnation, the the idea that God would take on human form and, and, and come and live in our world in the person of Jesus Christ. But another quickly pointed out that uh, other faiths believe that their gods appeared in human form also, so that wouldn't make Christianity necessarily unique. One scholar suggested, well, the resurrection, perhaps the resurrection, the tomb of Jesus is empty. He conquered death. Several shook their heads saying, no, other religions claim that their leader returned from the dead as well. The debate then continued. Well, into the room walks C.S. Lewis, famous author, teacher, Oxford scholar, tweed jacket, pipe, arm full of papers, arriving as the, the scheduled next speaker. He sat down and he took in this conversation, which by now had evolved into a full-on theological tennis match, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, during a lull, Lewis spoke, and I won't try to duplicate his British accent, but he said, gentlemen, what's this rumpus all about? And everyone turned in his direction, explaining themselves. They said, we're debating what's unique about Christianity. And he looked at them, somewhat surprised, and said, why, that's easy, he said. It's grace. Grace is unique to Christianity, to the Christian faith alone. And the room fell silent. Lewis went on to point out that only Christianity uniquely claims that God's love for sinners is free of charge, that salvation comes to sinners with no strings attached. No other religion makes that claim, he said. Well, after a moment, someone commented that Lewis had a point. Buddhists, for example, follow an eightfold path. They walk on this path. They have to walk this path in order to gain enlightenment, the equivalent of heaven. Hindus believe in karma, another said, that your actions continually affect the way the world will treat you, that there's nothing that comes to you that is not set in motion by you, by your actions. Live the right way and you gain heaven. Live poorly and you come back through reincarnation and you try again and again and again. Islam's God, 
must be appeased through self-effort. Hopefully you live good enough for him to want you, to accept you. But you never really know whether that happens or not until you die in Islam. Unless, of course, you die a martyr in a holy war. Then you automatically get heaven. And, of course, in our day, we, we know all too well that that leads to fanatical religious soldiers whose mission is to kill unbelieving infidels. We know that. Do that, though, and you get to have heaven. Well, at the end of this discussion, everyone concluded that Lewis was correct. Only Christianity dares to proclaim that salvation is the loving free gift from a holy God to sinful people who do not deserve it, nor could they ever earn forgiveness and salvation from him. Christianity uniquely proclaims salvation by grace alone. And we say, amen to that great truth, right? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Faith in his death on the cross, which pays the sinner's debt. Faith in Jesus' resurrection as proof that the sin debt to God has been paid in full, not by us, but by God himself. And all we can do is say, thank you, saving God, right? Not just with our words do we say that, but with our lives we live out our gratitude for our, our salvation that has come to us by pure grace. Sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. Sola is the Latin word for alone, as we have been learning recently in this, this series that we're on. And sola gratia is one of the five solas that emerged from one of the most significant events in the history of the world. This month, we all probably got this figured out by now, this month of October marks the 500th anniversary of the Great Reformation, sometimes referred to as the Protestant Reformation. What this extraordinary period of time did, why it is so important, and why we're remembering it now, is because it gave back to the Western world, of which you and I are a part, the five absolutely essential non-negotiable truths that are a part of biblical salvation doctrine. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Solus Christus, Through Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, For God's glory alone. The five solas, the five alones, of true salvation. This is what the courageous reformers of the 16th century recovered from the black hole of false religion that dominated Europe in the 1500s. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of mornings, you know that we've spent a fair amount of time uh, in those mornings recounting and reacquainting ourselves with the historical framework of the Great Reformation. So, We don't want to do that again today, but we should say for those who might not know that more or less the Great Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, formally took off in October of 1517 when Martin Luther nailed in writing to the Wittenberg church door his 95 challenges, his his 95 pointed challenges to many of the, the practices and teachings 
that uh, were present within the Latin church, the Roman Catholic Church, which was the only church that there was in the 1500s in Europe. Luther, a, a Catholic monk, couldn't find in the Bible many of these, these practices, many of these teachings of the Latin church of which he was a part. The church for more than a thousand years had said that councils and the pope and the cardinals and bishops and priests possessed an authority that was equal to that of Holy Scripture. They stood side by side in terms of their authority. And that was dangerous. Martin Luther had become convinced that the Bible should be the final and only authority for everyone in matters of faith and life and relationship with God. The Bible had to be, Luther said, over the church because the church itself had become corrupt, it had become false, it had become self-serving. A thousand years, though, of this kind of religious hierarchical structure in that time when very few people could read had allowed the Latin church to do and say what, really whatever it wanted. And as a consequence, much was added to sinful human church by sinful human church leaders to what God had said. The Holy Spirit had said in the Bible, this is what God says, but the church had added a whole lot more. So much so that even the way for a sinner to experience a personal relationship with the living God had become distorted and, in fact, had become lost. The true gospel had been buried under a mountain of, of rules and duties that had to be performed by a person in order to be accepted by God, and so it became Jesus plus. Remember this? Jesus plus stuff that I do is what saves me. Not Jesus alone, but Jesus plus stuff that I do. And the reformers said no. They said no more lies. And so out of this reforming of the spiritual landscape 500 years ago came the five solas. Now last time I asked us to think of them this way, kind of like being a, a super strong salvation house. The foundation of the house, well, that's sola scriptura. The true gospel house rests on the foundation of holy scripture alone. Everything that we believe, everything that we obey, everything that we embrace, that we do, that we hold most dear concerning our relationship with God comes from sola scriptura, scripture alone. And we say, amen and amen to that, Idlewild Bible church, right? Well, upon this foundation then are three massive pillars which define what the true gospel really is and how it truly saves. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christos. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Nothing added to that. And then when the foundation of scripture alone is acknowledged and it's firmly in place, and these three essential pillars of the true gospel are immovably anchored into this foundation, then the roof on the gospel house, pointing only and forever upward, is soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. Church family, this is what the, the Reformation really recovered for you and me. 
And so I would ask you this morning, do you live in this house? Do you live in this house? Is this your house right now? Okay, that was a kind of a weak effort, wasn't it? So I'll ask you one more time. Is this the house you live in? Yeah, absolutely. The five solas, the, 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 the essence of salvation truth for sinners, for you, for me. We live in this house. And the Reformation is what brought that back into reality for us. Now, if last time was about what will be the final authority in our lives, Scripture alone, today we take up what that final authority says about how we can be saved from an eternity in hell without God. How can we be saved? And that then requires that you and I be introduced to the first of of these other truths, Sola gratia, grace alone. If we don't get this, we will never grasp what lies at the very center of salvation truth. Never know the freedom that is ours in Jesus from from a false performance-driven, works-based salvation theology. We don't want that. We need to understand salvation by grace alone. Nor will we be able to understand the and experience the joy that comes from realizing I've been saved by grace and not by anything that I've done, but by what God has done for me through Jesus. So your Bible is open now to Ephesians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, confronts in the first century the very same thing that threatened the church in the 16th century. False teaching that Jesus plus things I do saves me. Let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 2 and see what Paul, inspired by God's Spirit, has to say. And you were, what's the next word? Dead. Spiritually dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But, oh, aren't you glad for that three-letter word, church? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by what? By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we say amen and amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 and verses 8 and 9 are certainly not the Bible's only declaration of salvation by grace alone. But they might be the best known of all of the grace verses, especially verses 8 and 9. In fact, there's a very good chance that If you've been a Christian for very long, you have memorized 
verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you have, because we all should perhaps have these verses memorized. But if you haven't done that yet, maybe this would be a task that would be on your to-do list for this week. You would commit to memorize Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And if you did do that this coming week, then I would ask you out at Herky Creek next Sunday if you would come up and say, hey, Pastor Tim, let me, let me tell you, let me tell you from memory, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and I would love to hear that. Without the doctrine of salvation by grace alone that is captured in these verses, we really don't have biblical Christianity. Now, what exactly do we mean when we say, as Christians, our salvation is by grace alone? On your note page near the bottom, we offer this. Here's what we mean. God's love moves him to offer salvation as a free gift, unconditionally, with no strings attached, to any sinner who places all of their trust in Jesus Christ alone, believing that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead was for them and grants them forgiveness of their sin debt and eternal life by grace alone am I saved now brothers and sisters admittedly there is a lot going on in this statement more than we can possibly unpack in the time that we have but we can I think spend a few moments with four truths that lie really at the heart of this statement and and, and literally determine destinies, eternal destinies, right this moment. It would probably be safe to say that for most of us, we move through our days without bumping up against eternity. But today, we do that. We bump up against eternity. What we do with the four truths that we're about to take a look at determines our eternities. It's really, really important. If we embrace them, we get a difference-making, purpose-filled life now. We get heaven with God when this life is done. If we ignore these truths, we have nothing but an eternity of separation from God in hell as our future. Someone says, well, God would never do that. He's a loving God. He would never do that. You ever had someone say that to you? God won't do that. To that person, I would say respectfully, but I would also say honestly, my friend, you do not know the God of the Bible very well yet. Yes, he is loving, but he is also holy and he is just and he never ignores nor does he dismiss sin. Either Jesus pays our sin debt for us or we pay, right? Eternally important stuff that we are unpacking together. Grace alone is all about God's love, moving him to offer salvation as a free gift, unconditionally to any sinner who places their trust, all of their trust, in Jesus Christ alone. It's what we mean by grace alone. It's what the Reformers meant 500 years ago when they rescued the true gospel from the Latin church. If you'll flip your note page over then, let's take this, what does grace alone mean, to the critical next step. 
grace alone, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for me personally, this truth? Well, first there on your note page, since God's love moves him to offer salvation to me, a sinner, as a free gift, that means my salvation can't be what? It can't be earned. Do you believe that this morning? That you can't earn your salvation. It can't be earned. Because salvation is by grace. That means foundationally, fundamentally, it can never be worked for. It can't. We can never do enough things for God that he would be compelled or feel obligated to pay us back with salvation. You've sinned, I've sinned against his holiness and this is offensive to him to a degree that we in our finiteness and in our own sinful ignorance can never fully comprehend. We cannot, sin marred as we are, remove even a single offense from the record of our life by any effort of our own. Not if we really understand who God is in his holiness. And church family, this is why God's grace is such a foreign idea to so many people. We live in a culture, indeed in a world, that is based upon the concept of work and reward, effort and compensation. For example, we we work diligently for two weeks at our jobs, and then we expect what? On the 1st and the 15th of every month, what do we expect? We expect a paycheck, right? Absolutely. Many of you have worked for decades. Some of you are retired now. And and, and I would just ask you, in all of your working years, did you ever see a fellow worker go up to the boss after receiving their paycheck and say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for this undeserved gift. Thank you. I, I can't possibly communicate to you how grateful I am. I just can't believe you would give me this gift on the 1st and the 15th of each month. You ever had that happen? I've never had that happen. I've never seen that. It's because we're not looking for grace, are we? We're looking for a wage. We're looking for compensation because we earned it. What's more, Earning by self-effort, well, that's ingrained in us from the earliest days as our moms and dads try to impart to us a, a solid work ethic into our lives. The more we work, the harder we work, the more we should receive in return. It, 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 it's kind of how it's supposed to go. We're taught that. And this concept is present everywhere. For example, within the Ford Motor Corporation, every job position in that company is assigned a number between 1 and 27. The most menial jobs are ones. 27 is reserved for the chairman of the board. You work really hard as a one and eventually you climb up and you become a grade nine and when you get to grade nine you get a reserved parking place when you come to work. You get to grade 13 you get an office with a window. No more cubicles for you because you worked hard. You're grade 13. Grade 16, that comes with its own private bathroom. You know you've really arrived, that your labor and your work has paid off, man. In the military, same idea. 
You're assigned a rank, a uniform, insignias, a salary, certain privileges. Every soldier knows exactly where he or she stands in relation to every other soldier. And the harder that you work and the higher that you climb up the ranks, the better is the pay and the more people are saluting you because you earned that. You worked for that. Professional sports franchises, same thing. Owners reward players who complete passes, throw strikes, and make baskets, right? If you don't perform, you are gone. There's no place for those who can't do the job. That is our world. It's what we know. The harder we work, the more we receive. Not surprising then that we're naturally inclined to bring this perspective into the spiritual arena. If you work hard and you do all of the right things for God, all the things that He says you should do, then you'll be rewarded with heaven. You earn your salvation. We earn it. And, 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 and that's exactly what the church, the Latin church taught. It's all that was taught in 1500 in Europe. You didn't know anything else. Salvation from God by grace alone. Why? That was a, that was a thought that had not been alive and well in 1500. The reformers brought that back into the light. The reason it has to be salvation by grace alone is because we in our sinfulness can never work off the sin debt that we owe God. Agreed? We can't do that. On your note page, notice Romans chapter 6, verse 23. In fact, can we read that aloud together right off the screen? Let's do that, church. Let's read. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice this verse. When it comes to sin, things work exactly like we would expect. Sin pays a wage, doesn't it? That's what the verse says. Sin earns a dreadful compensation, spiritual death, spiritual separation from God forever. Sin pays, and it always pays on time. But salvation from God, well, it's a gift, isn't it? It's a gift. Eternal life is a free gift. And a gift is never earned. It is never compensation. In fact, the moment that a gift is taken as compensation, it's no longer a gift, right? I earned it. Check out these two verses from Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what? His due. It's exactly what you're supposed to get. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, that is in Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul here is simply saying what Ephesians 2 4 and 5, verses 8 and 9 are saying, salvation is by grace, never earned. And then let's recall Romans 3, 23, 24. You know these verses. For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means to be declared not guilty in the court of heaven by God. All and are justified by his what? 
by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Not one word about earning, right? Because salvation isn't earned. It's a gift received. Salvation and forgiveness of sin is only made possible because of what Jesus did when he paid sin's penalty for us on the cross. Our Heavenly Father never charges for that. And aren't we glad? He gifts salvation to sinners simply because he wants to. Because in his great love, he desires to be gracious. He does what nobody expects. He'll never be unfair. He'll never be unjust to a sinner. But if he wants to be gracious, well, that's his prerogative. He is sovereign God, after all. He can do what he wants. And we should be eternally grateful that this is true because we could never, ever do enough good things as sinners to cover our sin debt or pay God back, not for the debt that we've accrued. Salvation by grace alone. It's the story of getting something we did not earn. But also there on your note page, it's the story of getting something we don't deserve, right? Something we do not deserve. My salvation is undeserved. And at the heart of the doctrine of grace alone is this truth as well. Now, the thought here is different from the first truth. The first truth confronts the lie that says, I know I owe God and so I will work hard to pay him back, to earn my salvation. It can't happen, but every other belief system in the world, said C.S. Lewis, points, points in that direction. You work and you earn your salvation. Christianity doesn't do that. But this second truth moves in another direction. It confronts the belief within myself that I am basically a good person and God owes me because I'm good. He gives me some, He gives me salvation because I merit it. I deserve it. Now, this is a perspective that is extremely dangerous, isn't it? Very dangerous. Because it's rooted in the soil of pride where all sin ultimately is born, and it's nurtured and it's fed and it grows through the practice of comparison. And here's what I mean by that. We're all naturally, as sinners, prone to think of ourselves as good people. We're all good people. You're good, I'm good. We're all good, right? We're good. Ask just about any person that you want, complete strangers even. Are you a good person? Are you a good person? And what are they going to say? Yeah, I'm a good person. What are you thinking? I'm bad? No, I'm a good person. I'm basically good. And they may then at that point tell you that they try to live by the golden rule. They They obey the laws of the land. They give to charities. They avoid the the nasty nine and the sinful six because God says don't do those things. And so they're a God-fearing person, and they're good. And as they compare their lives to others that they know or are aware of or read about or hear about in the news, they come to the conclusion, by comparison, I am not just good. I'm what? I'm really good. I'm really a good person. The Bible never, ever says that of people. 
And for some who may be here today, if you don't hear anything else, please hear this. Because eternal destiny depends upon this. The Bible never says good people go to heaven. Ever. Why? Why doesn't it say that? Because as we read earlier in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, what did it say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the perfection of, of God. All, no matter how good they might think they are or their peers may say that they are, have sinned against a holy God. And that sin pays a wage, doesn't it? Romans 6.23 said, And the wage is spiritual separation from God. In fact, just look carefully again at those opening verses of Ephesians 2. Your Bible's right there. Look again. What does it say? And you were, what? Dead. Spiritually not alive. Not mostly dead or partly alive or barely alive. You were spiritually flatlined. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath? Like the rest of mankind. Who's wrath, church? God's wrath. God's righteous, right, and just wrath against the sin committed against him by who? By all of us, right? Good? Am I good? I'm dead. I'm, I'm dead in transgressions and sins. And the anger of God is justly directed at me. And brothers and sisters, should anyone entertain any lingering illusion of, of, of goodness within themselves... Let's remember Isaiah 64, verse 6. In fact, can we read that right off the screen together? Let's do it. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. <laughs> it's got to be pretty clear at this point that from God's point of view, no one deserves salvation because they are good? I don't think so. So impacted by the sin nature are we and so infected are our hearts that unless our hearts are transformed and changed through relationship with Jesus Christ, they remain not good. Even our righteous acts we do are done with a motive other than to bring God glory and therefore they're seen by him as no more than filthy rags, no matter how good we might think they are. The Apostle Paul, quoting other Old Testament statements from God, says this to the Roman church, Romans 3, 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What that should say to all of us is that unless God determines to be gracious to us, we who are not good will not spend eternity with him, but will be separated from him. Salvation is never deserved. It has always been a grace gift. Undeserved, but offered nonetheless because God is gracious. Sola gratia. Well, someone might ask, if a forever relationship with holy God is not deserved and it's not earned, how does it happen? How does salvation happen then? That's a great question, isn't it? Don't you wish you would get that asked of you several times in a week? How do I get salvation? It happens when I put all of my trust, all of my faith in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for me. This is the truth the Reformers 500 years ago fought and often died for and then rescued from false religion. My salvation is through faith alone in Jesus alone. Now, in the weeks to come, Lord willing, we're going to go much farther with faith alone and Jesus alone. But for right now, take another look at that Ephesians 2.8 verse. In fact, let's read that aloud together right off the screen. Can you do that with me? For by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. It is not earned. It's not deserved. It can only be accepted when it is offered. And so therefore, faith kind of serves as the the hands, if you will. You can picture it this way. Picture faith as the hands that figuratively are held open to receive the gift that God wants to give. That's faith. It's not something I do. I just open my, I just hold out my hands. Salvation, as the great reformer Martin Luther put it, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. No one will ever get to heaven by doing anything other than believing in what Jesus has already done. He finished, he finished the work of redemption and salvation for us, didn't he? He did it at the cross when he paid our sin debt. He did it at the resurrection when he conquered death. He did all of the work. All we can do is what? Believe that he did that for us. Us who don't deserve it. Us who could never earn it. You know, sometimes we hear people say, but it's so hard to exercise that kind of faith. You have that kind of a faith, but that is so hard. I could never do that. You know, we need to ask at that point, really? Is it that hard? This thing called faith? Stop and think about it. Every single person in the world lives by faith every day, right? Every day. We open a tuna fish can or or, or a bottled water believing that they aren't contaminated with some kind of a fatal bacteria, though we know nothing about the canner or the bottler, right? 
We eat that stuff and drink that water in faith. We drive our cars by faith, don't we? Trusting that the other guy's going to stay in his lane, trusting that he hasn't been drinking or that he's not on his cell phone, right? Sadly, that's often a misplaced faith, isn't it? Every person's life is a series of faith acts every single day. Faith placed in things that are infinitely less reliable than the promise of salvation that comes from God. And he never lies. He says, believe and be saved. Nowhere in the Bible is that promise more clearly declared than by Jesus himself in John chapter 3, verse 16. You want to read that aloud together? We should, shouldn't we? Let's do it together right off the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What a promise, church. Is it your promise by faith today? Have you laid claim to that verse by faith? And then look closely again at verse 8, for it says that even the faith to believe in Jesus is a gift that we get from God. We're going to get into this more next time with sola fide. But here in verse 8, God says, I will even supply the faith that you need to believe in my son. I will give you that as well. So not only is salvation a gift through Jesus' finished work, so too is faith a gift in order to believe in the work of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, it's, it's grace, grace piled on top of grace for you and me. And to all in this room, I would say, have you, at this point in your life, have you, have you opened your hands and simply received the gift that God wants to give you? through Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you done that? Now the reason that God has made salvation work this way, not earned, not deserved, purely a faith-received gift, is so that there will be absolutely no boasting on your part or mine ever. Not in this life, and not in the life to come. No boasting. And that's the last truth there on your page. At the heart of salvation by grace is this truth. My salvation is a boast-free salvation. Verses 8 and 9, one more time. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that what? No one may boast. You know, these days we're familiar with such terms or phrases as this is a smoke-free restaurant or hormone-free beef or caffeine-free coffee or sugar-free ice cream, which I can't, there's nothing good about sugar-free ice cream, is there, right? Right? (laughs) But we're familiar with it. No fun in it, but we're familiar with it. Church family, heaven is completely and totally a boast-free place. Did you know that? 
No one gets there by any human effort or, or by any good things that they have done or are. And even the faith that we exercise to believe and receive God's grace gift is supplied to us by him so that no one can say here on earth or in heaven, well, I believed at the age of 12 in Jesus Christ. You didn't believe until you were 42. I must be more spiritually inclined than you. No one will ever say that. Because salvation is a grace gift. Our Heavenly Father eliminates all boasting. He makes heaven boast-free so that the only thing that a sinner saved by grace alone will do is praise Him and Him alone, right? You know, I can't think of a better illustration of this than the life of the Apostle Paul. If you know anything of his story, you know that early in his life, he had determined to single-handedly, if necessary, stop the spread of Jesus' name. He hated Jesus' name. He searched out churches. He threw believers in prison. He partnered with others in the overseeing of the death of those who followed Christ. And he believed that Jesus was a false messiah. Until that one day in Acts chapter 9 when his world was turned upside down as the risen Lord Jesus personally met him on the road to Damascus. Remember that moment? Yeah. Here's what Paul says as he reflects on his former life to a young pastor named Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 14 to 17. And the, what's the next word? And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. That's another word for grace. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, because of all of that, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All Paul can do is give God the glory and boast in Him. My salvation because it was unearned and is not deserved and is by faith alone which God you've supplied, all I can do is say, praise be to you. No boasting. Step onto any high school or college campus and somewhere, usually in the gym foyer or the administration building entrance, there will be an enormous trophy case where all of the outstanding accomplishments of the school's teams are put on display, right? You remember this when you were in high school or in college? Remember that? The big trophy case near the office usually. Ribbons, medals, certificates, trophies, game balls, all in this gigantic case. It's the trophy case. But it really is the boasting case, isn't it? It's where you get to boast as a school about all of your accomplishments. Well, you know what, church family? God has one of these. Heaven is his 
trophy case. And inside, put on display for all to see for eternity, is every person who simply and genuinely believes in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And no sinner in this trophy case called heaven will be pointing at themselves and saying, look what I did. No. No. Brothers and sisters, we will be pointing at Jesus and his nail-scarred hands and his feet and we will be saying, I am the worst of sinners and here by grace alone I stand. And to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. My question to you, to all of us today, will you, will I be in that trophy case of grace? We will through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for 500 years ago through the Reformers recovering this glorious truth for us. That alone is pure grace that you have preserved this truth for us in your word and brought it down to us to this moment today is pure grace. How we thank you for your grace today. In a moment, we're going to, as a church family, we're going to gather around your table and we're going to remember you, Lord Jesus. Remember your death for us. We're going to remember what it costs for us to have the salvation that we have. And we're going to celebrate Father, your love for us in giving us your son Jesus, and we are going to to praise you for our salvation. But as we do, we will do so knowing in our heart of hearts that it's not anything we've done, not anything we deserved. It's all by your grace alone. May we honor you in that. And if perhaps today you've come into this this room and and you're not sure yet where Jesus lands in your life, you're not sure if, if you really want to entrust your eternity to him, I would just ask you, don't leave today without, without pressing that hard, asking the questions. Search out a friend that you know here. A- ask me, ask Brandon, ask somebody. Don't leave today without answering the question, who's Jesus going to be in your life? Today's the day and now's the time. For those of us who know you, Lord, we look forward to this moment, remembering your your body and your blood, which give us life. Life now and life forever by grace alone. And all God's people said, Amen and amen.